Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, so what we're tackling tonight between my talk and Gina's talk is a pretty huge topic and I think pretty pressing. Um, admittedly, admittedly, uh, much of this will be painted with some big, broad brush strokes, and that's okay. There's a lot of resources and things to, for further study and further reflection. But my talk, as I said at Mass on Sunday, is going to be aimed at kind of situating the topic of contraception within a sort of historical framework, but also looking at it through a theological and moral lens. Um, and then Gina's going to be coming in with uh, the practicalities, which she definitely has a lot more experience uh, in than I do as your celibate priest. So she's going to hit on all that stuff. So let's just start with this title. I was, I was praying and asking the Lord for, for a title. I love titles. I've always loved titles. Going back to even grade school, thinking of titles for papers. But this is the title that the Lord gave me in prayer. Behold, it is very good. These words come from Scripture. Someone from which book of the Bible? Genesis. Someone gets a gold star. Who else knew that, though? Tell me at least some of you knew that. Did Allison? Oh, my. Yeah. I just had corn dip in my mouth. <laughs> Genesis, right? Genesis. So after the Lord makes the man and the woman, he doesn't just simply say it's good. He says it's very good. It's very good. What I want to propose tonight uh, is that the it in question is uh, multifaceted, right? Behold, Fertility is very good. Behold, human sexuality is very good. Behold, masculinity, femininity is very good. Behold, the church's teaching on these topics is very good. It's very good. It's very good news. It's some of the best news that we have. It's just amazing to me, after studying this stuff for so many years, still how uh, it is, it's still the most misunderstood and maligned and rejected of, of the church's teachings. People don't walk away from the church because they disagree with our teachings on just war theory. Right? They walk away because of things like this, of, of what we say about you know, bedroom issues, so to speak. So, all right, so it is very good. I want to start with this. I want to start with a very wide um, zoom out lens and then kind of zoom into the practicality. So we're going to do 2,000 years of church history in about one minute. You ready for this? Here we go. So the first millennium, we can put it this way, the first millennium of church history, we can think of it through this lens, that it was marked by... The, the rising of certain Christological heresies, right? So the first thousand years of the church's history, the church is wrestling with questions about the, the person and the nature of Christ. Who is this man? What is this man? What is a Jesus Christ, right? What do we mean that God showed up in human flesh? So for a thousand years, more or less, the church is wrestling with different heresies, Arianism, Monophysitism, you know, all the other isms that are dealing with what is a Jesus Christ. And the church, was got, the church got very clear about articulating an answer to these things. Met in councils, the Council of Nicaea, right? Our, our Nicaean Creed comes from answering these issues. That's the first thousand years. Again, very broad brushstroke. Second thousand years, or second, yeah, thousand years of the church, the church is dealing with issues of ecclesiology. So over the nature of the church, the church herself. What is the church? What is unity in the church? Where do we find unity in the church? Who speaks authoritatively in the church? Right, so in the second thousand years, we see issues of schism. First, you've got the East and the West in the 11th century. Then fast forward to the Protestant Reformation later on. 
And that's just led to further splintering ever since then, right? So the church has been the issue in the second millennium of uh, the church's history. We're in the third millennium. We're in the third millennium, and it seems, I don't want to be you know, a prophet of doom and gloom here, but it seems that what the church is facing in this third millennium are issues of anthropology. So it's not Christology that we're concerned about, not ecclesiology, it's anthropology. What is the human person? What is man, right? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to have sexuality? What do these things mean, right? So the church, through her saints, are addressing these heretical, let's call them what they are, these heretical, divergent ideas about what does it mean to be a human person. Humanity is up for grabs in this third millennium of the church. So where do we see this? It, it's, it's, it's come from the, the centuries leading up to where we are. Um, you see the rise of secularism and atheism in the 19th century, right? Um, you see this rise of totalitarian atheistic regimes in the 20th century. And what we began to see was this total confusion and loss about who we are and what a human person is owed. How do we respond to humanity, right? In the, the 20th century, which began with all the promise of the Enlightenment, this idea we were really coming into this age of reason, it ended with two great world wars and more martyrs um, than all the history of the church combined. It, it ended in mountains of corpses and rivers of blood. We don't know what we are anymore. We don't know what we are anymore. We don't know what it means to be human or how to be human. We don't know how to be human anymore. I mean, just being, here's, the, here's just, you can do this for fun sometime when, when you're in an elevator. Just be in an elevator or a waiting room. Do this in a waiting room. Be in a waiting room and don't bring out your phone. And just watch how people think you're probably a serial killer. Like, like <laughs> she's plotting to blow us all off, right? Because surely you can't just sit and not be on a phone, right? Yeah, we don't know how to be human anymore. So we're trying to reinvent our humanity. This is one of my favorite lines from the Second Vatican Council, that when God is forgotten, the creature becomes unintelligible. And I've got this paired with uh, this famous painting. What's this painting called? Scream. The Scream by Edvard Munch. It's a, it's, a, it's a portrait of modern man, alone, disconnected, just howling in confusion. This is who we are, right? I would say this, and I'm pretty confident about this, that nearly all of the church's hot-button morality issues, like all of them, really, they come from an inadequate understanding of what a human person is. Right? All of the lightning bolt triggering third rail hot button issues, it comes from a misunderstanding or a disagreement about what a human person is, what makes us flourish, what are we for, right? what is our end, what is our destiny, what are the sorts of things that direct us to an end. Because the culture doesn't even think that we have an end anymore, right? That there's nothing towards which we are tending. So if that's the case, then all decisions, all options are equally valid. And that's obviously not the case. So where, all, where is all of this confusion playing itself out in a distilled form? It's playing itself out in the realm of the body. In the realm of the body, our understanding of the body, we're experiencing what uh, some theologians have called an eclipse of the body, an eclipse of the meaning of the body, right? The meaning of being human, the meaning of being a man, the meaning of being a woman, these words that used to be so obvious aren't so obvious anymore. 
they're still obvious. They're just contested and they're being hijacked and they're taking on new meaning. And related to those words, words like husband, words like wife and father and mother and family and sister and brother, all of those words which, which imply behind them embodiment, all of those words are being redefined. The enemy is after the words, right? If Jesus is the logos, the word, right? Think of John's gospel, and the word became flesh, right? And dwelt among us. If Jesus is the logos, the enemy is the anti-word, right? Jesus calls him the father of lies, right? He confuses us by proposing lies. He's replacing the meaning of words with alternate meanings. Words like love, sex, family, rights, mother, father, all those words. He's going after the words, right? Jesus is the word. The enemy is the anti-word. Get your head wrapped around this quote for a second from Christopher West. Today, governments, in fact, are now demanding in law that we identify everybody without identifying anybody. But when we identify somebody without reference to his or her body, we identify quite literally nobody. <laughs> we're not nobodies. We're somebodies, right? We have bodies. This is the problem. So what's at the root of all this? Where is all of this coming from? This is where we're going to start with this black and white picture. Okay. As I'm sure we're all probably aware, our Blessed Mother appeared to three shepherd children between May 13th and October 13th in the year 1917, and she delivered these messages to these kids in Fatima, Portugal. Um, Our Lady of Fatima, right? We've all, we've all heard of Our Lady of Fatima? Good, okay. So in these uh, messages that she delivered, they've come to be known as the three secrets, so to speak, of Fatima. The first vision, the first word, the first secret was this sort of harrowing vision, this tour de force of hell. She brought them to hell, these little kids, Pretty irresponsible, if you ask me. Um, the oldest was like seven. Anyway, that's a question I have for Mary when I see her. But the, uh, she gave them this tour of hell, essentially, and uh, they got to see that there's not an insignificant people, number of people who are going here. The second was a prophecy concerning world, a second great world war, and that Russia, if Russia didn't convert, Russia would be spreading her errors throughout the world. And the third was a prophecy concerning the Holy Father that he would have much to suffer and be killed, right? Okay, I'm going to zero in on the second one, the second prophecy, because many people just simply assume that she was talking about communism spreading throughout the world. And that's, that's like true to a certain extent, but it's deeper than just simply in a political philosophy. So Karl Marx, I don't know if you ever studied you know, political philosophy 101, but Karl Marx, he, he saw class struggle as the defining factor of history. And he saw it as the, the division between the haves and the have-nots, right? Um, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, those who are um, in a position of power because of, of um, possessions and those who are more disenfranchised because of poverty. So he saw class struggle as the fundamental issue. And fundamental still in class struggle, he saw the root was in monogamous marriage. So even deeper than economic class struggle, he saw that the fundamental class struggle was in the, on the level of marriage, in, 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 on the level of the sex difference between the man and the woman, that there was a fundamental power, power differential that he wanted to overcome, that needed to be overcome. This comes from both Marx and Engels co-wrote things together. This is what they said, that the first division of labor is that between man and woman for the propagation of children. 
Marxist theory demands the abolition of the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. Marxism, which is the theory, communism is the practice, right? All these things, what we're seeing in the world today, it demands the abolition of monogam the monogamous family as the economic unit of society. This is, this is what we're seeing. Only in our days today have we seen this component of Marxism really come to the fore. We've probably heard of critical theory that's been kind of sweeping the culture in the past few years. This idea of critical theory is applying a critical lens to all the structures that make up society, more or less. And what we see now is this gender theory that is dismantling all the gender norms and stereotypes. Stereotypes. Where does this come from? It comes right out of this. It's right out. This is the what we're seeing today is the flowering of ideas that are decades, centuries old. Get rid of the family as the basic economic unit of society. So the error that Mary was talking about wasn't just communism, it was the belief that the difference between man and woman, which is an embodied difference, it's not a psychological difference, it's an embodied difference, that that difference and the family that that difference creates, that difference has to be eliminated, has to be overcome. Mary was talking about this error, this error of androgyny, this error of, of gender fluidity, this error of there's no such thing as man, there's no such thing as woman, it's all culturally constructed. Does this sound familiar? This sounds like the world we live in? Yes, okay. The enemy wants to attack and he wants to undermine the sexual difference. So to understand why, like why are you going after that? Why are you going after that? To understand why, or to be reminded of why, we have to be reminded of what is the meaning and the purpose of the sex distinction. Like, why did God make us this way? And more specifically, what's the significance of genital difference, right? Because that's where the difference is most expressly on display. Okay, are we with me so far? Anybody need more wine? It's in the back. Are you bartending, Jess Allen? <laughs> All right. All right, so let's do a little thought experiment. Thought experiment. Um, and what's funny about these thought experiments that I used to just like have in my talks, now like the Babylon Bee has like articles now that were my thought experiments. So anyway, I, there was a clip I was gonna put in here, but I'm like, it's like 10 minutes long, but it's hilarious. This alien comes, so this alien who comes from a genderless planet is coming to Earth, right? And he's observing the creatures on the planet. He's observing humanity. And one of the very first things he would have this alien would have noticed in this, from this genderless galaxy, this, what this alien would have noticed right away, most likely, is the sex difference. That there's two ways of being this creature human, right? And then the alien would have asked, what is this difference for, right? It's not just random, what is this difference for? And upon further study, this alien discovers that each member of the species, this male member, this female member, each member of the species is utterly sufficient when it comes to nearly every other bodily function that they have, right? The man, just as much as the woman, they, they have a locomotive system, they can walk, they have a muscular system, they got a skeletal system, they, they can walk on their own, they can breathe on their own, they digest food on their own, they think on their own. They secrete hormones on their own, like everything is self-sufficient, right? They're all self-sufficient, except in one respect, 
right? The male and the female are radically incomplete with respect to one bodily function that neither can do separately. Neither possesses a reproductive system. You've got your own respiratory system, your own nervous system, your own muscular system, your, your endocrine system. You've got all of those systems onto yourself. What none of us in this room have unto ourselves is a reproductive system. What we have are reproductive organs that only together with the complementary organs of the opposite sex, of an adult person of the opposite sex, do you have a reproductive system. That's significant. That is significant, right? Note the cleverly placed branches to, for modesty. Okay. <laughs> You gotta love medieval artists being like, they will never know. What's <laughs> you have to have the complementary genital organs to generate new generations. This is where, this is the meaning of the word gender, which is so hotly contested today and thrown around like everyone knows what it means. No, gender is the manner in which one generously generates the next generation, right? Let's look at this. The word gender has at its root this root gen, which is a Greek root, which means to give birth to or give life to, right? So when you see gen, think of generous or generate or progeny or genesis or genitals, right? When I do this slide in eighth grade, everyone goes right there. Okay. So what is the meaning of the word gender? It means this, that one's gender is determined by the manner in which one generates the next generation. And that is determined by the genitals that one has. <sighs> we could be done, right? We, we could be done? OK. It seems so clear. So then here's the question. What is generated? Babies. That wasn't a trick question. Babies are what get generated by these genitals, right? Babies, highly dependent newborns. We got one in the room, so dependent, can't do anything, right? Highly dependent newborns that require long-term parental investment from both mother and father to be brought to maturity, right? Why? We are not like snakes or sharks, right? We're a different species than these creatures, right? When we are born, we're not hatched like snakes. They're hatched, they're off slithering. They're gone, they're good, right? They don't need mom and dad to be like, did you pack your lunch? I made a worm for you, right? Like they, didn't, they don't do that, right? Sharks, they're just gone, right? Human beings, that's not what we are. So this alien, back to the alien, this alien concludes that the man and the woman who are engaged in this activity, which brings forth new life, that if they're going to be responsible, they ought, to have, they ought to have already established a prior commitment to each other first, right? This commitment, this vow, we call marriage, right? This is what marriage is. This vow to responsible genital intercourse is called marriage. This is why sexual intercourse has long been called the marital act. It's the thing that married people do because it makes babies. And babies need moms and dads, right? That's why this is the marital act. It's the kind of thing that married people do because it's a life-giving union. It's the only kind of life-giving union. Right? We, don't, we don't regulate who gets to hold hands with whom. There's nothing really crazy that happens when you hold hands. I mean, like, your heart may go like, but like, you're not conceiving anybody, right? It's not like a secret handshake. 
There's a funny story about my cousin telling my, his kid that there's a secret handshake. That's how babies are made. It's a very, I'm going to tell you, but anyway. <laughs> anyway, it, you, this, this used to be so obvious. This used to be so obvious that marriage is the arena in which marital intercourse happens because intercourse is what makes babies and what makes life. Babies need moms and dads. This is what we used to call the facts of life and used to be obvious to everybody. These realities that there are men and women, not so obvious anymore to many people. What happens to those men and women? They tend to fall in love. Right? They tend to be attracted towards one another. There's a natural magnetism in men and women that draws them to each other. And they fall in love. And when in love, what happens? They tend to have sex. <laughs> That's what you tend to do when you're in love. Why? Uh, because sex is the embodied way we give ourselves totally to another person. It's the embodied way that we give ourselves totally, totally to another person. Because we're not angels. We have bodies. So to, to make a gift of myself to another, I make a gift of myself to another, right? Like the embodied way, it's not just simply enough to hold hands. It's not just simply enough to kiss. Love, love demands totality. Love pushes us towards totality. It pushes us towards the infinite. It pushes us towards a radical, total gift of self. That's why when you got married, married people, you stood in front of an altar and said, I will give you the rest of my days, everything I have, every drop of blood, everything that I have, everything that I could give to you, I give to you. And not just for a little bit of time, I'm going to give it to you for the rest of my days until I die. Love makes you make crazy promises like that, right? The total gift of self. And sex often makes babies, right? That's what it does. That's what it does. Like the, only in this world can we have the phrase accidental pregnancy. This crazy world that's forgotten this, that sex makes babies. That's what it does. It's like someone stepping on the accelerator of the car and it goes forward and they're like, whoa! Like, no, it's what it does. It's, it's working right, right? And then the thing about babies is babies deserve to be raised by their own mom and dad. They deserve to be raised by their own mom and dad. All, all of these things are contested today. All of these things are dismissed today as old-fashioned, as, as not, not the science. OK, all right. This used to be obvious, that genitals were meant for generating and that sex leads to babies. This used to be obvious. So here's the question. What has changed? What has blinded us to these realities? What has obscured our vision? How do we come to forget, or how do we come to dismiss, by and large, as a culture, and for many people in the church, that genitals are meant to generate the next generation. What has changed in our culture? Another way to put this is, how did, we come to, how did we come to this place where so many people, so many Christians, so many Catholics, are just so OK with the idea that it's OK for non-married people to do the married people thing? How did we get there? Because if you go back in time, let's say, you know, to, to 1940. If a man said to uh, a woman that he was interested in, I, I'd like to have sex with you, which is a very weird way to you know, initiate courtship, admittedly. But if he said that, she would, think, she would think, he wants to marry me. I don't think that that's what guys mean now. I know I'm a celibate priest, but I'm pretty sure, because I hear confessions, that that's not what people mean now. 
That's not what they mean now. So how do we get to this place? Um, in a word, a contraceptive blindness is, what, is how we got to this place. And it's not a new blindness, right? There are uh, funny hieroglyphics uh, from ancient Egypt, in fact, that display all sorts of bizarre ways that humanity has been trying to thwart the procreative potential um, going back many, 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 many thousands of years. I couldn't find a slide, but I, I had it somewhere in my pictures. There's a slide. I'm just going to describe it. Recommending that a woman put crocodile dung in a certain part of her body as a contraceptive method. And it turns out that if you die of sepsis, you also don't conceive life, you know? So um, pretty effective, right? So anyway, so since the beginning of time, men and women have been trying to thwart the procreative potential of their bodies. But it really was only with um, technological advances in the 1800s, our ability to, to the vulcanization of rubber to create more or less somewhat effective means of barrier methods, and then especially the, birth, the invention of the birth control pill in the 1960s, did we have what the culture would say would be consistently reliable ways of preventing pregnancy. So at the turn, listen to this, think about this. At the turn of the 20th century, contraception in all of its forms was not just merely looked down upon, it was illegal. It was illegal. There were laws on the books, the Comstock laws, that that were against this. And until 1930, every single Christian denomination, not just Catholics, every single Christian denomination was in lockstep behind this teaching that we are against contraception. Not just the Catholics, the Protestants, the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Anglicans, all of them. So what happened? In 1930, the Anglican Church changed its teaching saying at a conference they gathered in Lambeth, England, they said that in some rare instances, in some very special circumstances, married people might be able to licitly use contraceptives. That's what they said. What was their reasoning? They didn't have any. They didn't have any moral reasoning, any theological reasoning. It was simply a, people were having really big families. People had really big families. Europe had just gone through a great war. Europe was decimated. They're just, the people were suffering tremendously, and they thought, this is a kind pastoral thing to do. Let's let them have this. And what they didn't realize at the time is they simply cracked the door open ever so slightly with this tiny little permission and then shortly thereafter, almost immediately thereafter, nearly every single mainline Protestant denomination followed suit, leading to major pressure being applied to the Catholic Church. Think of like dominoes falling. Do, 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 do. All of this, this cultural upheaval, this saying we are accepting this, this is now coming to the Catholic Church, is the Catholic Church going to change? So around this same time, in the middle of the 20th century, there were individuals who were developing on their own a new method of birth control that wasn't just simply a barrier method, so not just like the condom or the diaphragm. It was, they, wanted to, to, they wanted to develop some type of medication, some type of pill that the parties could take that would stop fertility entirely, right? We're talking about two individuals in particular, these two folks, Margaret Sanger on the left and this guy on the right, Gregory Pincus. Margaret Sanger and Gregory Pincus. Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Right? Not a lot of people know about Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. She um, had a real loathing for um, parts of the population that she saw as 
less fit, right? So this sort of, this sort of social Darwinism and eugenics, were, which were a huge part of the Third Reich, Hitler's Germany, um, this was kind of all the rage in academic circles and, and it really bled into Margaret Sanger's uh, thinking. Like she thought about the ways that, that Nazi Germany took care of who they deemed deplorables and, and undeserving of life. That, you know, they, they rounded them up, loaded them in rail cars, brought them into extermination camps and killed them, burned them, buried them. She thought, not bad, but ineffective. She thought it'd be a lot easier to eliminate a population of unfit, undesirable people, people by simply preventing them from being born or aborting them before they get to have their first breath. Who was she hating? She hated the African-American population. She launched this project known as the Negro Project. And she enlisted hundreds of African-American pastors and reverends to help her, help her in the propaganda of um, selling contraceptives to their people. This is a quote. We do not want to, word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Most of Planned Parenthoods today are in poor inner city neighborhoods. She's crushing her goals. I think it was 2014. 80-something percent of African-Americans conceived in New York City were aborted. It was some, it was, I'm fudging that statistic because I can't remember exactly, but it was, it was well over 50%, well over 50%. So Margaret Singer, Gregory Pincus. At 71, Margaret Singer met Gregory Pincus at this, uh, this party, and um, they got to talking, and Gregory Pincus, he had already been working on in vitro fertilization, which was so unethical, he, he didn't have any support from any boards, no one wanted to fund his research, but he didn't have a moral compass, so he didn't care. He'd already began initial phases of, of developing a birth control medication, and he, had, and he began testing it, ironically, on rabbits, and he was successful, it wasn't working. Rabbits weren't making baby rabbits. So um, he knew that he needed to test it on, on a wider human population, and Margaret Sanger greenlighted him, connected him with some serious funding. So. Uh, they needed to find some human test subjects. So what do they do? Um, at the time in Massachusetts, distributing contraceptives was still illegal, right? So they enlisted some, a family physician to uh, gather about 70 women who were reporting issues of fertility. And without any real informed consent, without really telling them what they were being tested with, um, they just started testing these women with this developing birth control uh, pill. Almost immediately, half of the women pulled out of the study because of the intense side effects that they were experiencing. Intense side effects. Um, so they had some initial success in this, uh, in this testing. So Gregory Pincus, his big financial backer was this woman. Her name is Catherine Dexter McCormick. She was a big, uh, she was big in the, woman, um, the woman's voting rights issues. She wrote a letter to Margaret Sanger about this need for wider testing. And she said, Catherine McCormick said, we need to find a cage of ovulating females to test the pill on. OK, so where did they find this cage of ovulating females? They went to the Worcester State Hospital, also known as the Worcester Insane Asylum. So you had folks there who were um, just mentally disturbed, people who were incapable of giving consent, right? 
They tested this on these patients. The conditions were horrendous. The, the, the lab testing methodology was, was really suspect, unbelievably unethical. Um, 1954, Pincus writes to Catherine McCormick, and he tells her that the testing in the United States is going relatively well. They're getting some good results. But there's just too much red tape and too much oversight, too much bureaucracy in the United States to really get the kind of wide-scale testing that we need. We need more information to give to the FDA for them to approve this drug. Now, mind you, at the time, people in the FDA and pharmaceutical companies were chomping at the bit. They wanted this to be approved because, man, a pill? that healthy woman took, like a healthy woman took every single day through her years of, of healthy fertility, that is, it's just, it's a license to print money. So they were looking to find uh, a reason to approve this. So they went to, they went out of the United States. They went to Puerto Rico. And what they initially did is they tried to test the pill on uh, female inmates in Puerto Rico. And the female inmates said, absolutely not. Which I love those women for that. <laughs> no. So what they ended up doing is they started associating, um, enlisting people in the study by you know, food and medication and other sorts of incentives. They incentivized women to, to participate in these studies. The initial batch of test subjects, many of these women died because of the, the improper um, dosaging. It's mind blowing. So this is, like, this is the history of where this, this drug comes from. The pill hit the market in 1960. By the way, I just was thinking about this. Like, notice that there's, there's not another drug that just goes by the pill. Right? If someone says she's on the pill, we all know what pill she's on. You're like, wait, what, uh, like aspirin? Like, <laughs> like, no one's like, he's on the ointment. <laughs> like, like, oh, the ointment. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> OK, so a lot was happening in the church and the culture around this time, um, some crazy, crazy things. I'm going re to read something from this book over here. Hold on. This book, by the way, is awesome. This is uh, Patrick Coffin's book, The Contraception Deception. This is an awesome place to start with just kind of going deeper. But listen to this. Just to get an idea, mindset-wise, where, where things are around this time, the Second Vatican Council. Actually, I'm going to save this quote for later. Hold on. Hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that. OK. Crazy things are happening in the 1960s in the United States and around the world. In 1962, the church did something crazy, which was call an ecumenical council, which is all the bishops from the world come to Rome for the biggest meeting imaginable. Um, oh, that just stresses me out thinking about that. OK. So shortly after the birth control pill hits the market, there's all sorts of questions that are coming up about this. And all this pressure is being put on the church. Will the church change its teaching on this topic? Will the church change its mind? Because the question was, is this the same thing as these barrier methods, right? It's clear in the barrier methods that we're thwarting the procreative potential. We're stopping. There's something in the way. Is the pill the same moral object as those methods? That was the question. That was the question. So this question was going to be investigated by a separate commission that the pope was going to call of theologians, bioethicists, these sorts of, of folks to, to advise the pope on this matter. Initially, the commission was a very small group, and then it ballooned to like over 60 or 70 individuals. Um, initially, the momentum was the for, for maintaining the church's teaching, but that quickly shifted. Um, at a certain point, 
the majority was for changing the teaching and this majority report um, pressuring the Pope to accept it. This report was leaked to the press, which was a big no-no. You're not supposed to do that, right? It was leaked to the press in May 1967. So May 1967, the world gets to hear this rumor that the church is going to change its teaching. The church is going to change and get with the times and finally agree to contraception, blah, blah, blah. The world is finally, especially in America, we were like, this is amazing, right? Everyone thought the church was going to be changing. Okay, now this book. Think about everything that is happening socially in the 1960s when the church finally deliberates on this stuff. So this is from Patrick Coffin's The Contraception Deception. For social upheaval <clears throat> and violence, the year 1968 was quite the year. That was the year of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in which the Viet Cong in the North surprised America, American and South Korean forces with massive attacks. As the Vietnam War dragged on, anti-war protests, many turning violent, spiked across the country. It was the year of the brutal My Lai Massacre in which U.S. Army soldiers went on a killing and raping spree against unarmed civilians. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were murdered that year. The same year, the French government was almost toppled by strikes in the May student uprising. In Derry, Northern Ireland, police baton civilian rights demonstrations were igniting the, tr the, the troubles. In Hollywood, the decades-old Hayes Protection Code was replaced with the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, rating system in November of 1968. Tumult was the theme change, the constant, the English historian Paul Johnson called it the year of American suicide attempt. Into this galloping river, Humanae Vitae was dropped to whirl bravely upstream like a gawky, determined salmon. And whirl it did, even, th even though, from a worldly point of view, it carried the wrong message at the wrong time to the wrong audience. A little over a year, so that majority report leaked in May 1967, a little over a year, in July 1968, Pope Paul VI releases this little thing, Humanae Vitae, right, on human life reaffirming the, the church's traditional teaching that each and every act of sexual intercourse needs to preserve both the unitive and the procreative ends of sexuality, meaning that God has joined together these two ends in sex, that sex does two things. It bonds the couple together in so many ways, but it also is procreative in nature, right? Unitive and procreative. Both of these need to be preserved. What God has joined, man must not divide. To give you a visual of um, the unitive and the procreative. I've got these beautiful pictures. Look at the babies and bonding, right? There's the unitive, there's the procreative. Okay. I just thought these pictures were so funny. Okay. So Humanae Vitae is issued 1968, and the world is in full-blown dissent. The day it's issued, the day it's issued, Father Charles Curran at Catholic University of America is on the steps holding a press conference telling Catholics, you do not have to listen to this. You do not have to listen to this. This is based on a faulty anthropology. This is based on faulty morality. You do not have to listen to this, right? Dissent takes over everywhere. The re and this remains, this document remains the most rejected and vilified and ignored of church teaching. Now, let's look at what Pope Paul VI had to say and prophesy about what would happen if this was rejected. Okay. You guys doing okay? Anybody need more wine? Jess, more wine. Somebody, stop. Okay. There you go. We're, we're about to say some tough things. I might need more wine. 
Okay, the Pope said this, let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way for marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weakness and to understand that human beings, and especially the young, who are so exposed to temptation, need incentives to keep the moral law. Just so we're clear, what was the incentive that kept young people, by and large, from fornicating? Babies, right? Out of wedlock pregnancy, right? The fear of out of wedlock pregnancy. And it is an evil thing, he said, to make it easy for them to break that law. We've taken away, contraception takes away the need to grow in virtue and self-mastery, self-possession, right? It just makes it easy to fornicate. And, and should contraception fail, which it often does, right? Doctors, pharmacists, they don't tell girls when they, when they get the pill, no, you really, you really need to take this at the same time every day, you know, kind of a thing. And if you don't, there is variability now in wiggle room, and condoms are only 84% effective. Anybody know that before tonight? I'm going to start a skydiving company, y'all, and uh, our parachutes open up about 84% of the time. Anybody want to come with me? No, nobody would, right? Nobody would. So contraception, it's inherently built to, to fail. And when it fails, don't worry, we've got this other means, this other sort of industry waiting in the wings to take care of and eliminate the unintended, uninvited guest, namely the baby, the abortion industry. People thought more contraception was going to lead to less abortion. No, not at all. You've already got people who are already saying by their sexual activity, we don't want that life to be here. And if and when that life shows up, we are going to get rid of it. Right? Contraception only increases abortion. It's throwing gas on the fire. Okay, back to the Pope. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and, disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium, reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires, no longer considering her as his partner, whom he should surround with care and affection. Whew. Hashtag me too, right? Contraception creates, it has created the playboy dream world where every woman is sexually available, where every woman is merely just a means for his pleasure. That's what it is. That's what it's created. Finally, he says this, careful consideration, I think, hang on, oh yeah. The Me Too movement, okay. Careful consideration should be given to the danger of this power passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law. Who will blame a government which in its attempt to resolve the problems affecting an entire country resorts to the same measures as are regarded as lawful by married people in the solution of a particular family difficulty? Who will prevent public authorities who will prevent public authorities from favoring those contraceptive methods which they consider more effective? Should they regard this as necessary, they may even impose their use on everyone, HHS mandate. It could well happen, therefore, that when people, either individually or in family or social life, experience the inherent difficulties of the divine law and are determined to avoid them, they may give in to the hands of public authorities the power to intervene in the most personal and intimate responsibility of husband and wife. 
Remember this? Like the little, sister of the little sisters of the poor having to pay for contraception and abortion? Was the Pope right? Yes or yes? Yes. Okay, so soon after Pope Paul VI dies in 1978, this fella, Karol Wojtyla, the Cardinal Archbishop of Warsaw, of Krakow, excuse me, who was not allowed to come to the Second Vatican Council to be on, to participate in that commission, Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, he comes to Rome to elect the new Pope, because Pope Paul VI had died. He brought with him this manuscript that he'd been working on, that he'd been reflecting on studying humanity, sexuality, masculinity, femininity. He'd been crafting it for years, and it was almost complete, and he wanted to work on it in between the voting sessions of the conclave. First page of this manuscript bore the title in Polish, Theologia Chala, right? Theology of the Body. And it was dedicated to Mary, who is toda pulchra est, all beautiful. Christopher West, who's the great theology of the body uh, commentator, theologian, popularizer of John Paul II's work, he said this, that the hundreds of pages that followed held perhaps the most profound and compelling biblical reflection on the meaning of our creation and redemption as male and female ever articulated, the in-depth mystical insights of a modern saint that had the power to change the world if those insights had an opportunity to reach the world, that is. So, the cardinals, they come together, they elect the first pope of 1978, this guy, Albino Luciani, the white light. Okay, so Albino Luciani, he takes the name Pope John Paul I, and the historians, the, the, the theologians, they come up to him after the conclave, and they say, uh, Holy Father, um, you're just Pope John Paul. You don't have to say, I am Pope John Paul the first. He goes, no, 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 there will be another. He's Pope for 33 days. He does a Wednesday audience on faith, one on hope, one on love, and then he dies. It's like, peace, mic drop, he goes to heaven. Okay, so some people say he was poisoned. I don't know, we're not gonna talk about that. Okay, so 33 days into his pontificate, he dies. The Pope's come back to Rome for the second time in 1978. I know you're on the edge of your seat. Who do they elect as Pope? <laughs> Carol Wojtyla, the first non-Italian Pope in over 500 years to take, to take the, the, be the successor of Peter. Okay, so he emerges Giovanni Paolo II, right? Pope John Paul II. And his theology of the body, Theologia Chala, that he was just probably gonna publish as a little book that maybe like 15 people would read and one person would do a dissertation on, he now has in his hand to deliver as his first major teaching project of his pontificate, which he does for the first five years as Pope. He goes to the Logia of St. Peter's Square and begins to teach the world about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, right? In this little encyclical, Lori, can you hand me my, my copy right there of Theology of the Body? Thank you so much. Okay, so in this teeny little encyclical, there's a line there's a line where Pope Paul VI calls for, he asks, asks for a, a, a total vision of man. To under, he's saying, to understand this, this, we need a comprehensive new vision of man. What does it mean to be human? So Pope John Paul II writes this, right? Like, ugh. it's a bit much, right? It's a bit much. But that's what he did. That's what he did. He, he had observed that in order to understand the Christian teaching on sex and procreation, humana vitae, we need 
to go, as he said, beyond partial perspectives. We need a new vision, right? We need a new vision. This is what he does. This is what John Paul II does in Theology of the Body. He, he reframes all of the church's sexual ethical questions away from is it licit or illicit, right? Because the questions had been for, for decades, essentially, like the teenage high school question of how far is too far, basically, is what ch church morality had been reduced to, right? Like, how far, like, how much making out with my girlfriend can I do before I have to go to confession, Father, right? Church is like, well, if you kiss her for more than five seconds, you have to go, you know, like that kind of a thing. So he reframes the whole thing, and he, asks, and he starts asking these bigger questions about, you know, what does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? Right? What's at the heart of all of this? So John Paul II, in TOB, he's inviting the world to, to, as Jesus does, come and become one who sees. That's what this is all about. So in short, his long-studied answer to that question of what does it mean to be man, what is our meaning of our embodiment, it's essentially this, that human sexuality is a sign it's the greatest sign that God has made that reveals his inner Trinitarian nature, right? That masculinity, femininity, it's the earthly icon of the eternal Trinitarian dance, right? When God, who's a Trinity, makes an image of himself, right? This is an icon of the Trinity. When God makes, a, makes an image of himself in creation, he makes not just a man or a woman, he makes a couple, right? Whose bodies and souls are capable of life-giving love, just like our God is an eternal dance in exchange of life-giving love. So the family is the earthly sign of the Trinitarian dance. How fancy is that? Come on now. That's pretty nice. Okay. And God has carved this truth. He's carved this mystery into our very bodies, right? So he put it this way. This is the thesis statement of the theology of the body. That the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible the spiritual, and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Okay, our bodies tell the story is essentially what John Paul II is saying. Our fertility tells the story. If you heard me preach last weekend, that's what I was talking about, that human fertility is the pinnacle of created fertility, which is all a sign of God's eternal fertility. Why do you think God, Jesus is always talking about seeds and fertile soil? It's like, hello? It's because it's all a sign of his life-giving love that he wants to put into us. Okay, the enemy did not want the world to hear this. The enemy did not want this to be told to the world. He didn't want this to get out. So on May 13th, which is whose feast day? Our Lady of Fatima. May 13th, 1981, Our Lady of Fatima, John Paul II, is riding through St. Peter's Square in the Popemobile, which is so cool. Cooler than the Batmobile. Thousands of people in the crowd coming to see the Holy Father. And in the audience that day, well, the Holy Father that day, what was he doing? He was going to be announcing to the world the establishment of the Pope John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family, essentially the evangelical arm of his pontificate, his way of getting out into the world this teaching of his. He wanted to think of new and creative ways to inject this teaching into the bloodstream of the culture of the wider world. He was announcing this that day. This was the day he was going to be announcing this. So amidst the crowd, amidst the cheering pilgrims, there is a communist-hired assassin named Ali Atka who had 
been so successful that he had never missed a single target. And he was there to take out this pesky Polak. Okay, so that's what he was doing. Akka, from about 15 feet away, fires three shots at the Holy Father. The Holy Father goes down. He's shot in the abdomen. Blood is everywhere. Blood is everywhere. If you go to Rome today, in fact, you can actually venerate the spot in St. Peter's Square where he was shot. It was right there. So the Holy Father is rushed to the nearby hospital. That day, it just so happened that the chief trauma surgeon in Rome, he wasn't working. He was off. But earlier that morning, he said in later interviews, he said, I was filled with this compulsion from the Holy Spirit I know now that said, you have to go to work today. So he gets in his car, he starts driving, and he turns on the radio, and he hears the Holy Father's been shot. And he's like, oh, crap, right? And he goes, right, he steps on the gas, and the drive that should usually take about 25, 30 minutes took him like nine minutes. There's no cars. It was like that scene in Bruce Almighty where he's like, and there's like no traffic. That's what, that's what the Lord did, right? He parted the seas, and he drove so fast to the hospital. The um, bullets, the shrapnel, missed vital organs by tiny fractions of millimeters. He loses like five or six quarts of blood. It was crazy. It was crazy what he went through. But he survives. He survives. While he was recovering in the hospital, he remembers, it was May 13th, Our Lady's Feast Day. He's like, go give me that other secret from Fatima. I want to read that thing, because the world didn't know about it yet. He opens it up, and he reads, and the Holy Father will have much to suffer and will be shot and killed. He's like, huh? right? He later said that one hand fired the gun, another hand guided the bullet, right? Another hand guided the bullet. So John Paul II later meets with Ali Akka in jail, and this guy had been ruminating on one question for months at this point. He was so perplexed. Oh, I didn't say this. After he shot the pope, he takes off running, okay, in St. Peter's Square, takes off running, and he gets tackled to the ground by a nun <laughs> whose name is Sister Lucia, right? Different Sister Lucia, not the one from Fatima, but a Sister Lucia. How this is not a movie yet, I don't know. Anyway, okay. So Akka just asks him, how are you still alive? The Pope begins to evangelize him, telling him about Our Lady. So let's talk about this bullet for a second, okay? This bullet. After he recovers, John Paul II, he takes the bullet, and he goes to venerate the statue of Our Lady of Fatima. And he notices that the, beneath the crown of Our Lady, there's a hole. He's like, oh, that's interesting. It just so happens that the hole in the crown of Our Lady of Fatima in Rome is the exact diameter that fits the bullet that was shot in the Pope's spot. Here, we'll zoom in. So he inserts the bullet into the crown, and there it remains today. You can't make this stuff up. I think you're stunned into silence or you're not impressed at all. I'm, I can't tell right now. I cannot read you. Okay. All right. Here's John Paul II meeting with uh, Sister Lucia of Fatima after he recovered later in his life towards the end. Speaking of Sister Lucia, she wrote uh, a letter to Cardinal Kafara, who was the first priest to, uh, to run the John Paul II Institute. He was struggling tremendously. And she told him in this letter um, that take heart, my dear brother, because marriage and family, this is the arena of the final and decisive battle between the enemy and the kingdom. 
she basically said that whoever fights on the side of marriage and family and life, um, just be a happy warrior because you're on the side of life. You're on the side of the Lord. So marriage, sex, and family, all of these things, they go together. They go together in this order. And there's a lot of reasons why couples contracept fear, you know, ease, financial reasons, all those things, just plain old, like, I don't know. We don't know any better. Um, but the Lord, through his church, is holding out another way, right? He's holding out another way, a way of, of, of flourishing. And of, like, I've walked with enough couples to know that it's, it's hard. It's plenty hard. Um, but my goodness, is it worth it? It's so worth it. So the church is inviting us into something so beautiful. And she knows something about humanity that, that uh, is a huge blessing to couples. So um, let's pray. And then we're going to take a little break. I'm going to turn it over to Gina. And uh, I did one hour. That was perfect. I told you I was going to do I'm going to go one hour. All right, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. We turn to you, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady who crushes the head of the serpent. We ask for your intercession for us and all those that we love, and especially all married couples, those who are on the fence with this teaching, those who are struggling with it, those who want to abandon it, that, Our Lady, you would increase in them hope Give them the grace to see that their fertility is the battleground where life and death, where good and evil, where the enemy wants to get in, that he wants that more than anything. Fortify them with your prayer and help us who struggle in this valley of tears to make it home to you. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll take a few uh, minute break and come back for the uh, practical side of all of this. So, all right. Thanks, guys. Just in case I didn't get to meet all of you, um, my name is Gina Haas. Um, I go to Sacred Heart and I'm a registered dietitian and Marquette Method teacher. Um, I just finished my training a few months ago. Um, so I'll, I'll get into that very briefly. But I don't know, this is from Couple to Couple League, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But Kevin and I are big Lord of the Rings fans, so I thought that was kind of funny. All right. OK. So before I get into I'm I promise I'm only going to probably talk for about 30 minutes. Um, you're gonna, I just want to briefly kind of share Kevin and I's NFP conversion story. That's what I call it and then just teach you what I think, this is my opinion, this is an opinion, is the easiest way to start NFP like right now. So um, I do have a bias, I'm a Marquette Method teacher, but I totally support any method that anyone can be successful at. So if you try Marquette and you're like, yeah, no, this is, you know, this is not for me, like I know Anna Schaefer does Creighton, I'll talk to Ann or Dr. Lasletta, We'll find you someone at Northeast Ohio NFP that can help you. And I think um, to get into our story a little bit, we did our pre-cana in the Diocese of Lansing. Um, they had us take a multi-weekend, like three-hour class, um, taught the symptothermal method. It was very in-depth. And remember that when we were going into this, Kevin probably was like, what is NFP? Like, um, what would, what? People do that? That's like a thing? And I was like, 
I kind of know about this, but I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which makes all the doctors know chart or irregular cycles. It doesn't make everything very easy. Um, so I was kind of optimistic, like, yeah, he doesn't really know what it is, and I kind of do, but like, let's give it our A-plus effort, and we'll, we'll really try this. Um, and after a few months, I was taking my temperature, and I to openly admit I wasn't doing all the signs. Um, I think I was probably not mature enough to the moment they said cervical position. I was like, what? <laughs> um, okay. But um, I was charting for months my temperature, trying to do the best I could. We go to like our three or four month class where we all line up, all the couples line up, and we get to have our charts reviewed. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, look at your ovulations right here. This is so perfect. Here's your frontal window. And we get up there, and it looked like a five-year-old drew all over my chart. And they were like, oh, um, have you been drinking water in the middle of the night? Or I'm like, I'm waking up at the same time. I'm not drinking water, which I always drink water. Like I was trying to do all the things. And they're like, well, honey, we think you need to see a specialist or something. Something's not quite right. And honestly, it was not the teacher's fault. We were not 100%. And when I heard that, it was like, nope, no, this is not, not going to work. Kevin's not on board. I gave him my effort. And like, I can't even get my temperature to show me where I'm ovulating. Like, there's no way. We're either going to have no kids if we do this, or we're going to have 12 kids. And that was just like, you know, we just weren't spiritually mature enough at the time. So we just used contraception. And going on in our marriage, um, we kind of, I would, it would be on my heart every once in a while. Like, I didn't obsess over it, but I was like, ah, Kevin, I feel like this isn't quite right. And he'd be like, I don't know. What, like, what do you want to, <laughs> what do you want to do? And so eventually, a few years go by. And um, I think it was kind of in that, like, my truth, hashtag my truth era, where I was like, Oh man, like I was listening to some Matt Frad and some Scott Hahn, and it's just like either we're Catholic and the Catholic Church has this right, but we're Catholic, but we don't follow what the church teaches. Like I was like, this is when you're being honest with yourself, you're like, this does not make sense. Either I'm right and I'm not Catholic, which is not an option for me, or I'm wrong and the church is right. And so after just listening enough and reading that one section of Humanae Vitae, I didn't even read the whole thing. I read that section. I remember telling Kevin, like, listen to what Pope Paul VI said. This is crazy. Um, so we, at this point, we're like, OK, we're going to try. I, started, I got another thermometer. We started doing the symptothermal method. I did not get a coach. I honestly know, don't know if I did it right. But we were open to having another kid at this point. So we were like, well, we'll do it as long as we can. And then we'll have a baby eventually, and it'll be fine. But then we realized after I was pregnant with our son, JJ, is like, oh, no, postpartum. Postpartum NFP is going to be really hard. And like we were doing it a little bit before, but now we like needed it to work. And I needed help. So I researched a few methods, and I was like, oh, this Marquette method, I like that it's it's very objective. And um, if I miss a reading of something, it's not quite, it's, it, I don't have to feel as bad. It's the morning test. And I was like, OK, I'm going to try to learn this. And then I had a friend who was like, oh, yeah, Marquette method postpartum is very simple. Like, I recommend doing it. So I got an instructor. And honestly, it worked. 
And I was like, wow, I can do this. Um, this is amazing. And then we also just saw the fruits in our marriage of even though, if anyone doesn't know, NFP can be very difficult. So we're not going to paint, you know, like, oh, this is so easy and wonderful. It can be very difficult, but it is worth it. And it will help your marriage. So um, I just felt the Holy Spirit calling me to help other couples or women who might have PCOS or have irregular cycles. And maybe some couples that don't understand why the church teaches this and explain that you can go from contracepting to NFP, it can work, and you can be successful. So that's why I'm here. Okay, um, before I go into the method, which is gonna be right now, I have a couple disclaimers that I just wanna say. Number one, I am not a doctor. That's why I have these ladies here. Um, I'm a registered dietitian, and to become a Marquette teacher, you do need to be a licensed professional, but if there's something complex that you ever have a question for, I probably, I will help you to the best of my abilities, but then I'm going to refer to you to one of them. Um, please get a coach. This is not an ad for me, but if you want this to get the effectiveness rate that it is, you need a coach. Um, I couldn't have done it without my coach. I emailed her all the time. I get emails all the time from my clients. I really, really recommend that. Um, the method I'm going to teach you is also for, this is not to be applied if you're postpartum and you're nursing and you don't have a cycle yet. So if you haven't had a period after you've given birth, this is not a method for you. Um, you can do Marquette postpartum, but my point is that's a different method. Um, okay, we're on to the next one. Let's see. Okay, so very briefly, the Marquette method was made by Dr. Faring. He still interacts with the teachers um, through our Marquette Professional Association. Um, and I, didn't, I wanted to say this. It was invented by him in 1999 with Marquette University. All of the teachers that are trained through Marquette University are licensed medical professionals, so either registered nurses, physician's assistants, pharmacists, and then I think I was the second dietitian. So exciting. My coach is actually the other dietitian. But um, there are lots of instructors to pick from as well. So if you do not want me to be your coach, or you can go to this website and someone else can be your coach, I am not offended whatsoever, um, because I highly re recommend getting an instructor. And the last thing I want to say is this is through Marquette University's Institute for Natural Family Planning. Um, it's, it's just great. I love it. So OK, I'll stop talking about that now. Um, I want to briefly talk about the effectiveness of NFP methods compared to contraceptive methods. And I realize looking at this, you might be like, wait, Gina, condoms don't work 97% of the time, most of the time. It's like, what, what did Father Pat say? 88%, 90% is the typical use. But I'm, gonna pick, I'm going to show you apples to apples. So natural family planning, these are the effectiveness rates when you have an instructor and you're following the rules. If you don't have an instructor and you don't know blank happened, what do I do? You can't say that you're following the rules perfectly because you don't have someone there telling you how to do it. So to get these effectiveness rates, you need to follow the methods and really get an instructor. Um, so yes, we all know that like birth control, normally the typical use is around 90%. Um, but I wanted to show you with perfect use what all these look like, to be fair. 
Um, I'm in regulatory. I have to be fair. Julia knows this. Can I say something about the pill folks? Oh, sure. They um, count the um, miscarriages that are caused by the pill mm -hmm. as effective. Yes. Okay, so that's. They don't count them as pregnancy. Okay, so they don't count miscarriages. Yep. And I was actually going to say that as well. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of women don't understand that on many hormonal birth control methods that you can conceive, right? And that's a problem considering that um, we as Catholics know that life begins at conception. We can't in good conscience take the hormonal birth control when we're married because even though that's not the main mechanism it's supposed to stop your ovulation, it's not always successful. And so, just like Dr. Lasoletta said, please, like, it's hard, but you can conceive and you can lose a child by taking hormonal birth control. Okay, I think, oh, and I did want to say one more thing. The side effects of the hormonal birth control, when you Google it, it's like nausea, headaches, like these like kind of mild symptoms. And it's like, does anyone talk about the depression, the, skyrocketing anxiety, and then do we realize who is normally on the birth control pill? It's teen girls and young women who are on social media, and what do we know right now? Their depression and their suicide is skyrocketing. So it's like, in my, I mean, I don't have to be a scientist to put two and two together, but to put a 17-year-old girl, even if she's not sexually active because she has acne, on the birth control pill and then give her a smartphone, it just seems to me insane. So please, 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 please. If you ever want to read a book, she's not Catholic at all. Um, it's called How the Pill Changes Everything by Dr. Sarah Hill. So I don't endorse everything she says because she's not Catholic, but she goes into all the research she's done on the pill and it is crazy. The things you read about how men aren't as attracted to you and you're not attracted to a man, a certain type of man when you're on the pill and off, I could go on and on. That's a whole other talk, so I'm not gonna do that. But it's super interesting. Okay, so what is NFP, how does it work? It's the use of natural signs of fertility to track the beginning, peak, and end of your, fer your fertility or your fertile window. The most common ways we do this are through cervical mucus, female hormones or urinary hormones, body temperature, and you can also use these together for sure, but a lot of methods focus on one more than the other. The normal Marquette method, um, you measure estrogen and LH, or luteinizing hormone. So your estrogen is what goes up while your follicle's developing, and it changes your cervical mucus from the, stick clear, or the thick, sticky mucus to the clear, watery mucus. Um, and then your LH surges, which happens right before you ovulate. So if anyone does use this method, um, or I get a lot of questions about this, your LH, when you get a peak reading or a positive LH test, it doesn't mean you've ovulated like that day. It, you ovulate within 24 to 36 hours after your LH. So that has to surge before you ovulate. So for this method, we're just measuring LH, but for the regular Marquette, you do estrogen and LH. Um, but it can work just to, to just do the LH method. So what do you need to do it? You need LH strips. That's actually it. Um, you can get easy at home 
or the wand flows, these are very effective. They're actually more effective at even picking up the LH than the clear blue monitor, which I use the clear blue monitor, and it always finds my peak. Um, but these are really cheap. You can get a box of 50 for $15. Um, and you can, like I said, you can start right now or on cycle day one. Um, I'm going to run through this really fast. So if someone has questions, let me know, because it's actually not that complicated. But what you do is you start using your LH strip on cycle day six. So starting on cycle day six, you start testing with the LH strip. And then you want to test the same time every day. Now, the packaging recommends 11 AM to 4 PM because your LH is highest during that time. From my experience, I never get a peak reading during that time because I drink a lot of water. So I get, in my, with my, the regular method, you collect your morning urine, and it is more concentrated. I've gotten the peak readings from my morning urine. So as long as you're consistent every day, taking it at this, testing at the same time, that will ensure that you pick up your peak. And I'm a dietitian, so I'm not going to tell someone to not drink water. That's insane. Um, but all you do is you collect your urine, and you insert the, the test strip for about five seconds. You lay it flat, and you read the results within five to 10 minutes to see if your LH has surged or not. And this is what it looks like. So on the right, this is on the OneFlow package. There's always a control line. So every time you test, there will be one control line that's going to be pretty dark red. The second line is the test line, kind of like a pregnancy test. Um, if it's positive, it's going to be as dark or darker than the control line. And then if it's lighter or there's no second line, you didn't have an LH surge. So you can see on the left here, this woman took, took a picture of her LH strip every single day. You can see it gradually get darker. And then on cycle day 14, it's, and that was in the evening, which is fine. It's as dark or darker than the control line. So you can see that that was her peak. And then you keep testing until you get three negatives. And you're done testing for that cycle. Um, if you guys want, I know I think you wrote down your emails. I was going to send everyone an Excel chart um, that I kind of, Marquette method gave it to me. And then I kind of just changed it for the LH strip method. But all you have to do is record positive or negative. That's literally it. There's two options. Um, and yes, you just keep testing until you get three negative tests. And I am going to talk through in a second how we calculate your fertile window. But we do recommend charting your period bleeding. And the reason is sometimes you don't need to do it. But if something is going on hormonally, it's really helpful for these guys over here, too. If something's going on, sometimes it shows up in your period, whether it's too long, it's too heavy. So it can be very helpful sometimes. And you just do one, two, three, or four based on that scale. OK, so for identifying your fertile window, which is the first important part of getting good at NFP, um, this is the Marquette algorithm. Um, it's the same, it, I mean, it's the same for the actual using the clear blue monitor, but it's just you have low, high, and peak with the monitor. So we just have positive or negatives. So for the first six cycles, your fertile window, we say you can get pregnant technically in your fertile window, starts on day six. Why does it start on day six for the first six months? Because we need to gather data on when you're ovulating. So if you have never charted 
We need to know, do you ovulate around day 14? Do you ovulate around day 20? We don't know yet. So that's why we're safe for the beginning. And your fertile window starts on day six. And always, this is the same for both methods, it, your fertile window ends four full days, four 24 hours, after your first positive test, or we also call it peak. And then going beyond that, when you go into seven, seventh cycle, 10th cycle, on and on and on, you just look, your fertile window shrinks because you're looking at the earliest peak of your last six cycles. So I'm gonna show you that in just a second. Infertility ends still four whole days. Kevin's gonna laugh at me because I say this all the time. Four whole 24-hour days after your first positive test. <laughs> He's never gonna forget that one. Okay, so this is an example of what the first six cycles of a woman's, say she just started, she's never done anything before. This is an example of what it might look like. She starts testing on cycle day six. You see that column? She gets a bunch of negatives. And then for the first cycle, she gets a positive on day 15 and 16. And then you keep testing until you see three negatives. So you always want to see three negatives to make sure your LH is like come, comes all the way down. And some women are really regular where they'll be like, oh, I ovulate on day 15 every single time. I'm a little bit postpartum and I have PCOS. I never ovulate on the same exact day every single time. Um, I'm just bitter, it's okay. <laughs> but what you do is, so, so fertility starts on day six for your first six cycles and then you count four whole days after. That's all you have to do. And during that fertile window, this is the trick with that NFP that does make it hard, you need to abstain. Um, if you're really trying to avoid, you gotta follow the rules. Okay, so the seventh cycle and beyond, and I'm gonna get, I know we're gonna get a little nerdy, I'm gonna like talk you through some scenarios just to make sure you understand. We're looking at her previous, so she's now on cycle seven. You wanna look at her earliest peak day, which is day 14, and then you take six days away. So now, instead of starting on cycle day six, your fertile window would start on cycle day eight. So now that we have more data, you can shrink your fertile window down a little bit. And then still, fertile window ends four whole days after the first positive test. So I'm, that's nothing new. Okay, so we're almost done, I promise. I, I hope this is like pretty fast. I feel like I'm going really fast. Um, if you were looking at this line, and a woman's earliest peak of the last six cycles was cycle day 13, to calculate her fertile window for the next cycle, for cycle seven, you would start at day 13 and go down six, and I'm like not doing my math right now. I wrote the answers down. Someone, Kevin can shout it out. Day seven, cycle day seven, thank you. Um, and then if a woman is in the, on her fourth cycle, she just started charting, her fertile window would start on which day? Cycle day? Cycle day six. Oh my gosh, you guys are so good. If a woman has been charting for eight cycles, and her earliest peak of the last six cycles was on day 15, her fertile window would be on start on cycle day nine. Yep. You see, it's really not that hard. Oh, question, yeah. I have a question. So on the last example you're using for eight cycles, is that where the last six is like rolling six? Rolling six. Yep, you just push it forward every single time. That's a great question. Yep, you always just look back at your last six. Okay. So I'm not gonna do any more scenarios with you because I don't wanna bore you too much. But that is the whole method. And there's protocol sheets right here. I do ask that like, 
please don't give these to all of your friends and be like, here, you can do it. And like, that would not set them up for success. So, you know, they can watch this video, but they really need to get an instructor. If you're really trying to avoid, if you're like, I just want to learn and we're okay getting pregnant, then you probably don't need an instructor, and that's totally fine. But there's two parts to be good at NFP. The first part is the scientific part, learning your fertile window, identifying it accurately with an instructor. And then I would argue is probably the even harder part is following the rules and knowing, okay, we're trying to avoid, we're not gonna have sex during that fertile window. It is hard. Um, I think if I had one couple, they're young, they're so sweet. When I explained this to them, they're like, what do we do during that period? And I was like, you abstain. And they were like, <gasps> so it's like, yes, it is hard, but you can do it. And it, it is worth it. And it definitely has helped our relationship and definitely helped our faith, um, for sure. So get a doctor who supports you. I highly recommend that too, other than the instructor. Um, we all know all women are like, you have a baby, and they're like, okay, what type of contraception do you want inserted at you right now? And you're like, um, none, thank you. Um, but yes, pray together, communicate, and just, it is worth it, and it can work, especially if you have help. So that is the end of my presentation. Anne already said it, that like, please, if you have any questions for the doctors, come up here. We have so many resources with North East Ohio NFP, their doctors, Veranova and Middleburg Heights, um, that there's no reason that you can't be successful. And Kevin knows it's probably a little bit annoying to him. Like I had a couple like contact me and they're like, we're not sure if this would work for us. Can you, I'm like, I'll just talk to you. We'll just, I'll talk to you for 45 minutes on the phone and I'll do my best to be honest and explain to you how it works so that you can try. Um, but there's a couple that one of them was thinking about getting sterilized. So it's just like, I will just talk to you for free. So that's probably a really bad thing to say because it's going to take up a lot of time, but I will do it. <laughs>